Now, if you would, uh, please open up your Bibles and turn in them in the New Testament to the book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter number 4 as we continue to pursue our study of 1 Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can turn in the back portion of that to page 160, and you would be at 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. Last week, we titled our message, The Next Great Event, and we pointed out that there is good news. There is a great event ahead. It's an event that will include resurrection and reunion and a generation who will not experience physical death. And that event is the rapture, or as we titled it, the great snatch. And we saw that event described for us in chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, where it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. For many people who are alive at the time this event happens, the very first audible words they hear from the mouth of the Lord Jesus will be the shout that he gives. Perhaps a shout to come up here. And we said last time that consensus among strong Bible students, there's total consensus about the what of the rapture. It's very clearly taught. This event will happen. The what of the rapture, there is a consensus about. The when of the rapture is a little bit different from that. By the way, it's a natural question we would all have as we read a passage like this to ask the question, when is this going to happen? And as you try to determine that, there's no single passage in all of the Old Testament or all of the New Testament that gives us a full picture of all prophetic events. What we must do is you must examine Old Testament passages and New Testament passages, compare them and consult them, and then draw conclusions. Well, when strong Bible students do that comparing and consulting, the result is that there are different perspectives about the when of the rapture and the great snatch. So we looked a lot of the what of the rapture last time. What we want to look at today is some more information about the when. And I'm going to give you today's plan. Here's what we're going to do. Number one, we're going to look at some cautions, very important cautions for us to take as we study prophetic events. Secondly, we're going to make some observations that I think are very important and then thirdly, I am going to give you my best on the when, my best understanding on the when. And then we'll conclude, we're going to conclude with some so what thoughts. What difference really is all this to make as we move on into our week and we live our life? Now, by the way, this is very worthy of our time to do this because there are large sections of the Old Testament and large sections of the New Testament that are given to prophetic events. So it's a good thing for us to take some time to study these passages of Scripture. I also want us just to note that uh, prophecy has suffered over the years at the hands of its critics, but also suffered at the hands of its fans, which leads us to some cautions. And the first caution is that date setting should be avoided. Now I want to ask you a question. How many people here this morning 
were too young or are too young to really clearly remember the events of 1988. How many people are too young? Let me just see some hands because I know you're out there. You're just too young to really clearly remember 1988. So there's quite a few of you there. Well, I want you to know something that happened in 1988. In 1988, there was a small book published by Edgar Wisenant. And this book was entitled, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And he talked about the key being September 11, 12, and 13 of 1988. Now, Wisenant uh, sent this book out to hundreds of thousands of church leaders and sold thousands more. And what his case was is, he said, I can set the time of the rapture. It would be in mid-September, tied into Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. Now, you know what happened. Mid-September came and went in 1988, and there was no rapture. And so he began to recalculate. He decided that he'd miscalculated by one year. So then he reduced, uh, produced a book called The Final Shout, Rapture Report 1989, where again he predicted that about the same time of year, in mid-September in 1989, the rapture would occur. Now I want you to know that Edgar Wisenant was very passionate about this. He was very confident about this. In fact, he said this, only if the Bible is an error am I wrong. Well, he was wrong, but it really wasn't the Bible that was the problem. It was interesting, this week I knew I had some copies of these books and I started to go through my library to figure out where I'd put them because I'd saved them. I thought someday this would be some interesting information. Couldn't locate them immediately, so I got on the internet and began to look for an electronic copy while I was on the internet, I found out that, that the book 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988 can be purchased on Amazon.com right now for anywhere from 50, or rather 30 to 50 bucks. Uh, it's become a collector's item because it's sort of a classic case in American church history of the problem of setting dates. And Edgar Wisenant, uh, Wisenant um, made some revised predictions about the rapture and when it might happen in the early 90s. But of course, the rapture never came. And he went home to be with the Lord in the year 2001. But a, a very careful student in many ways, he, he looked at a lot of passages of Scripture, but I don't understand quite why he would overlook what the Lord Jesus had to say, both in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, when the Lord Jesus said, that no one knows the day or the hour. We should be very, 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 very careful in avoiding setting dates. I want to take you back to 1970. Remember how I said in 1970 I went out to, to California to the Light and Power House on the UCLA campus and uh, Hal Lindsey was speaking there. And I remember sitting at his feet, and he'd recently produced his book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And uh, Hal Lindsey is a guy who had a very significant spiritual influence in my life in my early years. 
He was an outstanding Bible teacher who taught the Bible from cover to cover. And I remember I went through a long series of messages he did on the book of Romans. It had a huge impact in my life. And later on, while he was just a general Bible teacher early on, later on he went in to be more of a full-time prophecy buff. But I want to just share with you part of what Hal Lindsey taught. And I think he made some mistakes when he taught this. So turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 24. And I just want you to see how he taught and how he even began to offer some dates on things. So turn with me to Matthew 24, and we're going to look at verses 32 to 34. And I, I will teach this like Hal taught this at the time. Verse 32, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so part of what Hal would do is he would say this. He says, learn from the parable of the fig tree. He says, what is the fig tree? And he noted that there were several passages in the Bible in which Israel is pictured as being a fig tree. And so what he says is, this is a picture of Israel being refounded in 1948, coming out and blooming again as a nation. We're to learn from the parable of the fig tree, Israel becoming a nation again. When its branches have become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. And when you see these things, you can recognize that he is near at the door. And what he would say is this, the birth of Israel is a key sign. And then it goes on to say in verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And Hal would say, this refers to the generation that would see Israel reborn as a church in 1948. And so what he would say is something like this. He would say in the Bible, the generation is about 40 years. And you take 40 years from 1948 and you come to 1988. Now, he was more cautious in his wording than Wizenant, uh, but he nonetheless said that it's very likely that Christ could come back in 1988, and then he would back up seven years from there to 1981, and he would say it's very, very likely, I'm not being dogmatic, but he said it's very likely that the rapture, the great snatch, could happen in 1981, or perhaps it would happen in 1988. Of course, the Great Snatch doesn't happen in 1981. It doesn't happen in 1988. And then Hal would say things like, well, maybe a generation is 50 years and not just 40 years, which would take it to 1998 or perhaps 1991. Now, I had a lot of respect for him, but that was the way he interpreted this. But I do believe he made an error and uh, one of the things, we've already pointed this out, when you go to the parallel passage in Luke chapter 21 where Jesus is saying similar wordings, he says there, what I want you to do, disciples, is I want you to behold the fig tree and all of the trees. Now that statement clarifies that he's not talking about a fig tree in a figurative sense representing Israel, but he's saying, I want you to just learn. What do you learn from trees? 
And you learn from trees that when you see budding, you know that summer is near. And thus, when you see these things happening, you can know that his coming is near. Verse 33, so when you see all these things, by the way, plural, not one thing, all of these things. What are the things? Well, if you go back in the context, he's saying when you see, verse 15, the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. This is when the Antichrist comes into the temple of God and puts himself up to be worshipped as God. When you see, for example, in verse 21, that there's going to be this great tribulation, that a period such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. When you see those traumatic times, the worst times that the world has ever seen. When you see verse 29, that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. He says, when you see all those things... Verse 34, this generation, the generation that witnesses those end-time things, verse 15, verse 21 to 22, verse 29, that generation will not pass away until everything comes to fulfillment. In other words, what he was really saying is that when you begin to see these prophetic events happening, you know that Jesus' second coming is near, and the generation that witnesses that will witness all of them. In other words, all of this is going to happen within one generation. And so we need to be very careful. Date setting should be avoided. And even good people have made that error. Second caution I have for us is this one, and that is that Bible students differ. In other words, there are excellent Bible students who have come to different conclusions. Now, hear me out on this. When you have excellent Bible students who come as they study Scripture to different conclusions, it tells me that whatever conclusion I come to, I should not be dogmatic about it. And in other words, it's proper to research and study Scripture. It's proper to become convinced of a particular conviction to come to our best understanding. But if excellent Bible students are not coming to the same conclusion, we just need to be careful how we hold on to that conviction. We should not be dogmatic, cocky, or arrogant. We need to hold that conviction a little bit loosely. And even at Wildwood, we have different perspectives about the when of the rapture. And we have a philosophy that we operate with at Wildwood that if you go through our starting point you will see laid out for you, and that is this. In essential beliefs, unity. That is, in non-negotiable things, the person of Christ, the nature of the Bible, uh, the issue of salvation, we have unity. In non-essential beliefs, liberty. And in all beliefs, charity. So even at Wildwood, we'll have different perspectives, but we want to allow room for that in non-essential areas. Here is what is clear from the Bible. And good students of the Bible agree. Jesus is coming again. Absolutely clear. There will be a great snatch as described in 1 Thessalonians 4, particularly verses 16 and 17. But when this happens, 
is harder to discern. So with those cautions in mind, I want to make a couple of observations. Here's the first observation I have. The rapture, the great snatch, and the second coming have evident differences to them. There are some contrasts. For example, we'll look at the passages on this too. The great snatch, we have Jesus coming to snatch up believers, both the living and the dead. And again, we can go back to 1 Thessalonians. If you're not there, we'll just look again at what it has to say in verse, verses 16 and 17 of chapter number 4. If I can get there, you're probably already there ahead of me. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. We see Jesus coming in the great snatch to snatch up believers living and dead. In the second coming we see Jesus coming to judge the world and to set up his kingdom. So turn with me to the book of the Revelation, which is the last book of the New Testament, and we want to look at some verses here that delineate the second coming of Christ, and we'll see there are some evident differences. By the way, Revelation 19 is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Every time I read it, I get goosebumps reading it. But chapter 19, verse 11, he says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. In his second coming, he is coming to judge the world. And then if you notice in chapter 20 and verse 6, and also coming to set up his kingdom. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the rapture, the great snatch, and the second coming have evident differences. Another difference that we see is that in the great snatch, Jesus descends to the atmosphere. If you go back to chapter 4, verses 16 and 17 again, you notice it says, The Lord will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. In the great snatch, Jesus descends to the atmosphere, and we meet him in the atmosphere, and then we go to be with him forever. And then if you'll turn to the book of Zechariah, which is the next to the last book of the Old Testament, 
And chapter 14, we see that in his second coming, he descends to the earth. He descends to the earth. Chapter 14, verse 3 says, The Lord will then go forth and fight. And in that day, verse 4, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. In the great snatch, he descends to the atmosphere. In the second coming, he descends to the earth and his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. There are some evident differences between these two events. The third difference I want to highlight is that the great snatch is called a mystery and the second coming is not a mystery. If you'll go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51, we have another one of the passages that describes the great snatch. And I want you to see what it says there in chapter 15 verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all experience physical death. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the trumpet. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. See the description again of transformation and resurrection that happens in the great snatch. But the key phrase is, he says that the great snatch is a mystery. Now, it's important we take a moment just to understand that term in the New Testament. The term mystery in the New Testament does not mean that something's mysterious. Actually, the word mystery is a technical term in the New Testament for something that was not known in the Old Testament, but has now been revealed. And I want to give you a few passages, and uh, you can just jot down the references. Romans 16, verses 25 to 26, talks about the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifested by the scriptures of the prophets. Ephesians 3, 5, talks about the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And then Colossians 1.26 talks about how the mystery has been hidden from past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints. And if you go and you do a study of mystery in the New Testament, you will find out that there are several of them mentioned. One is from Ephesians chapter 3 where it says, what was not revealed in the Old Testament was that one day Jews and Gentiles would come together in one body. That's not a revelation in the Old Testament, but it's a mystery revealed in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it talks about how Gentiles could experience salvation, but it never talks about how Gentiles and Jews would come together in one body as co-heirs together. That was a mystery not revealed in the Old Testament, but revealed in the New Testament. And so we see that the great snatch is described as a mystery, something that was not revealed in the Old Testament, but now is revealed in the New. And that's a contrast, by the way, with the second coming of Christ. 
which was very clearly revealed in the Old Testament. There are some 1,500 plus passages that talk about the second coming. So the first observation we're just making is that the great snatch and the second coming have evident differences. Second observation I want to make is the distinction between Israel and the church. And if you study your Bible, you find out that the primary tool, the primary channel of blessing that God used in the Old Testament era to touch the world was the nation of Israel. And when you come to the New Testament, you find out that the primary tool, the primary channel of blessing that God is using to touch the world is the church. And the book of Acts is the transition between those two. And if you were with us uh, when we did our study of Acts um, at Equipping You, we, we brought that out in quite a bit of detail. The primary tool and channel in the Old Testament was Israel. The primary tool and channel in the New Testament is the church. And it's very important for us to see a distinction between Israel and the church, in my opinion. You know, many people say, well, well God just set aside Israel, and they're, they're gone forever. No, God has not permanently rejected Israel. He has set Israel aside for a time. But the Bible teaches us that God has given a future to Israel. I want you to turn with me in the Old Testament to the book of Amos. And you think, well, how can I find Amos? I'm not sure where Amos is. Well, if you can find Daniel, there's Hosea, there's Joel, and then there's Amos. And turn with me to Amos chapter 9, and I want you to see that Israel has a future in God's program. Amos 9 verse 13 says, Behold, days are coming. There are coming days that are very important here. In verse 14, here's what he says is going to happen in coming days. I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. And they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given to them. Now, this is not talking about some partial return from the Babylonian captivity, because we know that they were wiped out by the Romans and sent into captivity in the world for 2,000 years. And he says, when I do this, they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord God. Isaiah 14.1 says, The Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel. God has not permanently rejected Israel. Israel has a future in God's program. And you remember when we studied a few weeks ago, and by the way, if you haven't gotten all these messages, I would encourage you to go to the internet and get them or go over to the light source and get copies because we're building on prior weeks. But we looked at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, where we saw that there are seven years left in a period that was decreed for the nation of Israel until there would be an end of sin, until there was the bringing in of, by the Messiah of everlasting righteousness. Seven years are left in God's program. By the way, the church is never called spiritual Israel. It's never called the new Israel. There is a distinction between Israel and the church. Now that sets us up for my best on the when. 
Now, I, I want to say this again. There is consensus on the what of the great snatch. There's a difference on the when. And I want you to see that there are four basic views on the when. And we have a chart here to show this. There are only four places that Bible students put this. And the first place is called the pre-tribulation rapture. In other words, it's where the great snatch occurs at the beginning of this seven-year tribulation period. Others would conclude that the great snatch occurs mid-tribulation, at the middle of this seven-year period. A newer position that's been around for a little while now, called the pre-wrath position, would say that the great snatch occurs about three-quarters of the way through the tribulation period. And then the fourth position is the post-tribulational position that would say that the great snatch is synonymous with the second coming that they happen at the same time, that what happens is we're called up to meet the Lord in the air, but instead of going to heaven, we all come back down to the earth. And so you have those four, that you have to put the win in one of those four slots. Well, what does Bruce think in terms of what the best answer would be on the win? And my, my personal best answer to that is to see the great snatch happening in the pre-tribulation position. And we don't have time to go through a lot of information, but I just want to give you a couple of, of reasons for that. And the first reason for me is this distinction between Israel and the church. You see, what happens is, is that God in, in, decided to set aside Israel as his tool, and he picked up the church. And it is reasonable to me to see, if he, there's a future for Israel in God's program, that he would call up the church and then retake up Israel for those last seven years that he has promised to her. The distinction between Israel and the church. And it's kind of interesting when you look at the book of the Revelation. And, you know, the book of the Revelation is the longest section we have on prophetic events. And, and here's the way the book of the Revelation breaks out. In chapters 1 to 3, you have information being given to the churches. In chapters 4 and 5, you have a scene in heaven. In chapters 6 through 19 you have this tribulation period described in detail. In chapter 19, verse 11 and following, which is what we read, you have the second coming of Christ and the judgment. And then in chapter 20, you have the kingdom period where he is ruling. And then 21 and 22 deals with the new heavens and the new earth in the future. Now here's what's interesting about the way the book of the Revelation works out. The church is mentioned in the first three chapters 19 times. The church is not mentioned at all in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to chapter 20. And that becomes significant to me when you have the tribulation period, chapters 6 to 19, and you don't have the church ever showing up there. But you do have, for example, in chapter 7, uh, discussions about the 12 tribes of Israel. So the distinction between Israel and the church seems to be reflected in the book of the Revelation. Now here's what I want you to know. Four basic times, okay? Four basic whens. But many scholars of all of those camps will say this. If you see a distinction between Israel and the church, the logical answer to the when is the pre-tribulational slot. 
if you believe that. Even people who don't see a distinction between Israel and the church will say, but if you do, then you would be pre-tribulational. Now, if you look again at the chart that we have about the four different potential positions, um, my, my understanding of the distinction between Israel and the church is one of the reasons why I feel less comfortable with putting the win at the mid-tribulational point. I feel less comfortable with putting the win at the pre-wrath point of three-quarters of the way through. So the first reason why I think my best would be win would be pre-tribulational is because of the distinction between Israel and the church. The other reason why I would say, just to try to keep this as simple as we can, is that I think the pre-tribulational answer to win fits other details of the prophetic events best. See, there are many people who would say that post-tribulational is when it happens. It's synonymous with the second coming. But to me, that doesn't fit with some of the details very well. Now, now, think about this for a moment. If in the great snatch, all believers are called to Jesus' side, and that happens, let's say, at the when of the post-tribulational time, synonymous with Jesus' second coming, to me, that leaves us with a, a puzzling problem. Because if you go back to Matthew, you'll know that Jesus returns in Matthew 24. In Matthew 25, there is a judgment that happens. It's called the judgment of the sheep and the goats. When he comes down to the planet, it says that he's going to separate the believers, the sheep, from the unbelievers who are the goats. Well, that's a puzzling event if we've already been separated by the great snatch. You see, why is there a need to separate people on the planet when we've all at that point been called to Jesus' size and then we just turn around and we come back to the planet? doesn't seem to make any sense that you'd even need a judgment like the sheep and goats judgment. It doesn't really fit the other details. And here's another thing that's really important detail. If all the followers of Jesus at the great snatch that happens just as Jesus returns before the millennial kingdom, if all of them have resurrected bodies, which is what's going to happen, the dead in Christ rise first with resurrected eternal bodies. We who are living, who never see death, who are part of that generation, if we are, then we will have resurrected bodies. For the perishable will put on the imperishable, as it says in 1 Corinthians. The mortal shall put on immortality. You have everybody who's a believer that's changed at that point. We have the pagan world that is judged, and then we have to populate the millennial kingdom with people. But all we have, if that's the win, is you have no unbelieving people, and you have a whole group of immortal people. And yet we know that there are going to be mortal people in the millennial kingdom. We know that it's going to be a special time of almost a restoration of of paradise, and we know from Isaiah, by the way, it's wrong on the screen because I gave the tech guys the wrong verse, it's Isaiah 65, 20, that youth during the millennium kingdom will die at the age of 100. There are going to be mortal people in the millennial kingdom. And we know from Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 9, that there's going to be a rebellion against God at the end of the millennial kingdom. That means you've got to have mortal people and you've got to have mortal people who have children, and there are mortal believers who have children who at the end of the millennial kingdom will be part of a rebellion against Jesus Christ. Now that makes sense if the great snatch happens earlier. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, doesn't fit very well if it happens in the post-tribulational slot. So, my best on the win, my best that I can do 
is to see the win as happening before the tribulation period, before those seven years. Now, those seven years are going to be tough, especially the last three and a half years. It's going to be a time of unprecedented trouble and unprecedented judgment. And I want you to go back with me to 1 Thessalonians because we're going to look at this more next week. We're going to look more at the tribulation period, the day of the Lord. And I just want you to notice in chapter 5, verse 2, he says, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety, verse 3, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. We're going to look at that a little bit more next week. But here's something that's very important, I think, to emphasize. Sometimes people say this, well, you know, if you believe that the great snatch happens before the tribulation period, um, then, then that means we're home free. That means as believers, we don't have to worry about anything. I mean, we're never going to experience persecution. We're not going to experience, experience trouble in this life. We're not going to see believers suffering like believers are going to suffer during that period. So all we need to do is just sit back and relax now. Coast along. We got it made. But that's not true, even if the great snatch does happen there. Do you know, right now, we have fellow believers today, right now, who are in prison because of their faith, who are being tortured because of their faith, and who are being martyred because of their faith right now. It's just we're in America where we don't see those things happening right now. But that doesn't mean even if you believe in the, in the, in the when of the great snatch happening pre-tribulation, it doesn't mean that things can't change that, that as things move towards a more hostile environment, that even some of us here today might not end up in prison, might not end up being tortured, and might not end up being martyred. So we just need to remember that. Now, we've come to the so what. So what? I mean, what kind of impact should this have? What, what difference should it make in our life? Well, we've already seen part of it from 1 Thessalonians 4, where he says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We are to get comfort from what God says is going to happen. But I also want us to look at one final passage as we close this morning, and it's found in the book of Romans, chapter number 13. Part of the reason why this information is laid out for us in the Bible is it is to make a difference in how you live your life when you walk out of here, when you go back to your jobs and you go back to the real world that's out there. Romans 13, verse 11. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to you than when we believed. And it's true. The great snatch is nearer than it's ever been. The second coming, the tribulation period, is nearer than it's ever been. The night, verse 12, is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, 
This is how it ought to be different. Let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. We are to be shining as light. We are to be living out God's truth. We're to be investing in reaching others. We're to be giving ourselves through serving. We're to be honoring God through worship. We're to be teaming together in relationships. That's what we talk about at Wildwood. We are to shine as light. We are to behave differently. Verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. In other words, we're to be different from the pagans around us. We're not to be involved in sex outside of marriage. We should not be immersing ourselves in sensuality. You ought to make a difference in, in what we watch on television, in the movies that we watch, in the internet that we see. It should make a difference. We should behave differently. And we should not be operating in strife and jealousy. There, there shouldn't be among believers conflict over issues. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, for the flesh rather, in regard to its lusts. What it means, men and women, is these truths are laid out that we would live a different life from the world around us. We would live to honor Him. In the early years of Christianity, there was a little greeting that the believers would give one another. It was the greeting Maranatha. It actually occurs in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Maranatha means, oh Lord, come. And then when you look at the last dozen words, among the last dozen words that the Apostle John from the island of Patmos uh, writes in the book of the Revelation are these words, come Lord Jesus. Could you authentically say those words to the Lord today based on how you live your life? Could you just say to him, are you comfortable enough to say to him, come, Lord Jesus? Are you comfortable enough to say, Maranatha, O Lord, come? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. We we thank you for all of this prophetic truth, and we know that much of it we can understand, much of it is difficult to interpret. But we do know a couple of things. There will be a great snatch, and we are to encourage one another with those words. There will be a second coming of Jesus Christ to judge the world. And we do know that you want us to use these truths to motivate us to live in a different way, to live our life so that any moment we might be able to open our mouth and say, oh Lord, come. To be able to say, come, Lord Jesus. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.